Happy Throwdown Thursday, Shakes Pals. This week, we are talking about the films of Akira Kurosawa. And with me, I've got Dr. Alexander Joseph Munoz. It was an absolute blast to get to watch these films, some of which I had seen a long time ago, some of which were new to me. All of the links are in the show notes, so you can check those out after you hear the conversation that we have, or maybe hit pause and then spend the next like 40 hours watching them. Uh, they're a little long, but they are worth it, I promise. Thank you so much to Alexander for coming on. They were such a joy to talk to, and I hope you all enjoy the conversation. Congratulations to both me and Shannon from last week for tying which Shakespeare play would be the worst musical. Pericles and All's Well That Ends Well both got the same number of votes, and we even had some measure for measure thrown in there, which I agree would also be a terrible, terrible musical. Thanks so much again, Shannon, for coming on. Uh, that was a really fun one. And we've got some other fun stuff coming up. Next week, we're talking about Hallmark Shakespeare Christmas movies. So again, if you're looking for holiday fare to put on your TV, uh, download Peacock and watch uh, Rodeo and Juliet, The Spruces and the Pines, and Much Ado About Christmas. Give you a little uh, heads up warning for, for what to prepare for next week's movie chat. Other than that, all the same normal stuff. Adventure Incorporated is still doing our charity drive, so head on over to... Adventure Inc. Pod on Twitter, and you can find out more details there. Also, check out patreon.com slash p2mpod to find out all of the exciting and fun stuff that is happening on that platform. That's it for me today. I hope you enjoy, and I hope you're having a really happy and restful and joyful holiday season. Welcome to Protest Too Much a Shakespeare showdown podcast where a guest and I go head-to-head each week and you get to decide who wins. All right, so this year... Woo, this... I'm just going to start that over. No, we're doing great. This this week... uh, This year is almost over, and because of that, this week... We are getting a little um, a little filmy in our uh, chat. We're not doing a throwdown, but we are talking about the films of Akira Kurosawa. And with me, I've got actor, writer, director, producer from the Boston area whose serial novel, I Work for the Mailroom, is published chapter by chapter every two weeks on Patreon, Dr. Alexander Joseph Munoz. Hi, I like my Shakespeare like I like my pudding. <laughs> filmy. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, honestly, rough, rough intro on my part, but you saved it. So thank you. I th- you know what I think? I think we did it together. Yeah. Collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. Alexander, thank much you for like, being much here. Much like the famous collaboration between Toshiro Mifune and Akira Kurosawa. I can't wait to hear more about that later on. <laughs> um, so Alexander is our resident expert on film in general. So oh, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, what you do, and where they can find all your work? Oh, sure. I've been acting around here since forever. Uh, I started getting into Shakespeare when I was in college, uh, almost entirely by accident. I was aware of Shakespeare beforehand. I, I had you know, read it in school like everyone else. I'd seen a good few productions. I saw Midsummer Night's Dream at the Globe when I was a kid. Um, but then I started like really diving into it and getting in, involved in it and really loving it. Uh, so when the pandemic started, I got this... Um, this idea, I was touring with a Shakespeare group at the time, and 
our producers were like, well, the pandemic will be over in six weeks. So like, let's just keep sharp by rehearsing on Zoom. And I thought that's not going to happen. So what if we just do a full on production on Zoom that we can live stream and we can raise some money for charity? And then that evolved into let's do a different Shakespeare show every week uh, during the pandemic to raise money for charity. Uh, and that turned into a project called um, Howell Shakespeare Company, which I loved doing so much, but it took so much effort. And uh, But <laughs> I, man, I, I just loved bringing all those actors together because now a bunch of those actors are working together in like physical productions in real life and they'd never met in person before. And that was really gratifying. Anyway, um, now I'm in the process of really uh, buckling down on my writing. I write, as you mentioned up top, a serialized novel. It releases a chapter every two weeks on Patreon. I also write essays about film, short stories, scripts, all that sort of thing. And uh, as just sort of a personal hobby slash um, mental problem, I watch a movie I've never seen every single day. And I've done so since uh, 2017. Yeah. When you mentioned that, I was like, I I don't watch movies pretty much ever. I if it's TV, it's going to be Survivor or The Amazing Race because it's that like or like whatever Hallmark holiday movie is. Tune in next week. Sure. Um, but yeah, that is that's an impressive amount of stamina, I think, for movie watching. How do you feel like that? How do you choose uh, what to watch? How do you? Honestly, it depends because uh, sometimes it's about like I need to watch this movie like I'm like I was the person who was like 27 and still hadn't seen Godfather Part Two. Sure. But. Sometimes it's like I'm in the middle of a day where I have to watch The Bad Sleep Well and prepare for this recording tonight. <laughs> What's on Paramount Plus that is relatively short and I don't have to pay attention to? So I watched one of the most morally bankrupt films I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen Song of the South uh, today in the middle of watching the movie for preparation and this call. Oh, boy. that uh, I feel like that's like a roller coaster. Your day kind of just goes up and down and up and down. Boy, it can really depend. A, a, a great movie can really turn your day around. And sometimes you, <laughs> you, you watch gang bullets and you just think, wow, the 30s were a whole vibe, weren't they? Oh, boy. So <laughs> what? Uh, speaking of good movies. Great movie. What draws you to Kurosawa? Well, what, what really draws me to Kurosawa is there's a there's a simplicity and a wholeness in the statements that he makes. He says everything with his entire chest and you can tell that he is like a, a deep devotee of no theater while not actually wanting to make no, he is clearly inspired by it in a, in a, um, in, a in an obvious way. And he has such pride in the work he does. He doesn't do, he didn't do anything uh, halfway there's um I, I took some time really looking into the work of Kurosawa and Mifune specifically together and the story of Mifune is that he was a photographer during the wartime and one of his jobs was he had to train young kamikaze pilots and he trained them to to do what he legally had to train them to do it's a horrific thing what he was he and they were put in the middle of and he's training these kids who are like 14 years old and he tells them, when you turn your plane down and crash into a ship, when you yell bonsai, you do not yell bonsai for the emperor. You yell it for your mother or your father or yourself, but never for the emperor. So he was this guy who was put in this tiny little cage. They were these people who lived under this imperial regime. And then um, 
when it ended, there's sort of this feeling of like those of us who lived under brutal fascism and imperialism, like we now have to tell our stories and we have to share what we lived through. Um, but and it's so complicated living there after the fact. One of Kurosawa's first films, which uh, the name escapes me now, is about um, two young students who were faced with that choice of like whether to speak out against fascism or not. And like the way that just like quietly keeping your head down can destroy your soul. Um, and when Mifune decided to become an actor, he was part of an actor showcase at Toho Studios that almost like people just walked out of. They did not like his performance. Um, he was up there and he was just like giving this animalistic, brutal, primal performance. And everyone is like just not looking at him. And Kurosawa walked in. And he wasn't even supposed to be there. He just sort of walked in on a lark and he was like, it was like being struck by lightning. I saw this man and I knew I had to work with him. There, that, that sort of like singularity of vision speaks to me. Yeah. Uh, and I think that all of that is, I would say, especially, I see that especially in Bad Sleep Well. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> very, very clearly. But I think there's a lot of that in. Uh, the other two as well. So we're going to kind of go chronologically. We're going to start with Throne of Blood. We're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about Bad Sleep Well. And then we are going to cap it off with Ron. So let's start with Throne of Blood. Sure. Because this is one that I watched a thousand years ago. And um, some of the imagery, it's it's impossible to forget some of the, I think of each of the films, but it's impossible to forget some of the imagery of Throne of Blood. Uh, Throne of Blood is basically an adaptation of Macbeth set as a samurai era political drama. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's a perfect encapsulation of it. Yeah, um, it's striking. This is when they were both in their prime. Can I just this is like a completely uh, besides like anything really relevant to the greater discussion. But Toshiro Mifune, yeah. what a good looking guy. Oh, I. OK, so that was one thing that I. um had on my thing of notes <laughs> but yeah, i was same like, it's like my first note that i'm gonna talk about is this like appropriate to bring into this conversation like man he is yeah. he is a very handsome man that's that's a hot guy like he, <laughs> that's a hot guy if, if you like <laughs> if you ever have like the question of like what's the best looking a person's ever looked on film watch yojimbo and like 10 minutes in when he's just hanging out in a bar he looks like a 1960s lee pace with a sword and it is good Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good note to start with because it was on my list of things to maybe talk about, depending on how the conversation went. So I'm really happy Listen, that you started there. We're going to cover some heavy subject material here. Let's start yeah. by saying we all know it. Tojiro Mifune is a hot guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So yeah. this is an adaptation of Macbeth, mm -hmm. and it is a pretty faithful adaptation of Macbeth. There are a few yeah. things that are changed, but start to finish, it's pretty much it. Yeah, of the three, I think it hues more or less the closest. Um, and I think that's because Kurosawa himself was a huge fan of Macbeth. And the only reason he didn't do Throne of Blood sooner was because uh, Orson Welles had just done Macbeth. And he was like, I don't want to, I'm going to back off. I'm going to give it like 10 years and then make mine. Um, but we can't have two in a row. No, that would, just, that would be embarrassing. Uh, this year, we've got three major Macbeths happening in the span of six months. I know. <laughs> but um, I, 
Yeah, I, I first of all, um, Macbeth, one of my probably my favorite Shakespeare. I tried for a very long time to be like, I'm a Tempest kind of person. Tempest is my jam. Yeah. But like, <laughs> uh, man, I do love Tempest. But like when I was editing it for Howl show, I was I was just like, wow, there's a lot of stuff in here that needs to go, go, mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. There's a lot yeah, of I am not a Prospero stan. <laughs> no, no. He is um, a villain, I believe. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but <sighs> but yeah, Macbeth is so very good. And um, Kurosawa saw a lot of similarities between like Middle Ages Scotland and uh, and Japan and wanted to explore that. And I think he didn't have to deviate too far from the text to do it, which um, mm-hmm. I, I like how he deviated in other places. But we're going to get to that soon. Where does Macbeth stand on your roster? Where is it ranked? I love Macbeth. Yeah. It was the first Shakespeare play that I loved, I think, because I understood it. Sure. Um, and it was after I was, you know, that teen who was like, yeah, Romeo and Juliet, this is stupid. Um, as most of them are. But then I read Macbeth and I was like, now this is cool. Yeah. I <laughs> This lady Macbeth. Mm-hmm. It is cool. And the the, the text of it is cool. I'm just turning my shirt, my my. I'm turning my chair around and sitting on it, just like tell the kid, you know, like, that's pretty cool. Um, it, it it is cool, just like the the facility with language in it, like little notches. The way Macbeth code switches in the text is really fascinating to me. The way he shrugs off the royal we and just talks like a guy in front of the guys is, uh, really really interesting to me. And I like that it was carried over in this film in the way that uh, Mifune as Washizu, or should we call them by the character names in the film or the analog names? Um, I think if we establish that uh, Washizu is Macbeth, I think we can kind of go by the Shakespeare names, uh, the Macbeth character, just to keep it easy for listeners who may not have seen um, the films. Yeah, I don't want everyone, like, I, I, I sometimes got auditory processing issues. I don't want to throw four names at everybody when one will yeah. do. Um, the way that Mifune carries himself so differently in ceremony and in private, like the way his shoulders just go all the way up to his ears, like you really see all of the tension in Macbeth on display there. Like, as soon as he's in private, he is not playing it cool anymore. And he, he's, he's really showing you that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a lot of there's a lot of tension, and the thing that I that I came away with the most from uh, Throne of Blood and Run, which we'll get to, is the patience that Kurosawa has as a filmmaker. There is so much patience with I, I don't think Shakespeare has that much patience, and I certainly don't have that much patience as a person. Um, but the way the movie is constructed, you feel like you're always waiting for something to happen. Like something is going to happen. And, and I know the plot of Macbeth, but I don't know what's going to happen. And so I feel like that when we talk about adaptations, that's a really special way to bring some of that tension into a new and different um, and very fresh interpretation. That That's a great point. And my favorite um, my, my favorite aspect of that in Throne of Blood is how uh, the scene where they talk to the spirit who makes the predictions about what will happen to the Macbeth and Banquo characters after that scene, after they deal with the spirit, after the spirit vanishes. Um, and there's a great uh, in camera practical effect of like the, the spirit vanishing. And then yeah. like it, the camera zooms in as they walk into the spirit's house. And then as the camera pulls back, the house is gone. It's very neat. But right after that scene in the play where Macbeth and Banquo go like, 
well, we what what just happened there? Um, in in the movie, Kurosawa gives us like five minutes of these two just riding their horses through the wilderness while they're just thinking about what just happened. Mm-hmm. They don't put it to voice for a while. Like it's not until like the end of the day when they've settled down and are making camp that they are ready to express it to each other. And that whole time you feel that tension in the air. It's exciting. Yeah. And even just meeting the spirit, he sings for, I I don't have the timestamp on it, but it feels like about five minutes yeah. for that too. And mm-hmm. it is this slow haunting song that is very chant-like and he's on a spinning wheel and it just feels like, I, I don't know. It just, there's something about it that's so haunting and so patient and uh, patient is the only word I can use to describe it because it's the only one I have but it, there's something really magical about it yeah that that no theater rhythmic chanting thing like it really it, it's a very compelling story device um it feels like it's taking forever to get its point across but that is that is so entirely the point to like feel time slip by there's this yeah. whole framing device in the beginning and end where like the spirits are sort of singing to us about how like we we are seeing a story of doomed people so that 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 through line being kept by the um the spiderweb forest spirit is very is very yeah. neat the way i it, it sounds mischievous the way i'm putting it but the way he like deliberately wastes time is very mm-hmm. compelling on screen yeah and i think that to counter that and I, I would assume this is obviously obviously purposeful, but purposeful to show that the what a waste the fighting is, mm-hmm. is how those scenes go in such rapid succession. We've got a messenger, this just happened, a messenger, this just happened, a messenger, yeah. this just happened, and they're all fast cuts. And it's like this whole reporting of an entire war goes by in 10 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, because back then, like, your whole castle could just be gone like that and you wouldn't even gone. know. That's, and the, the choice to make the bloody captain five different guys is mm. super cool because they ju- they just can't rapid fire. Just another news, another news, more news from, from the front. Third garrison gone, fourth garrison gone. Like, it's it, it's amazing the way, like, their, their stories, like, build and build and build on each other and you just have to watch this guy the 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 great leader um the the duncan character um you just have to watch him take it in and balance it in his head yeah um let's talk about our lady macbeth character boy is she great or what i uh, um i would say she's probably one of the best adaptations of a lady macbeth i've ever seen yeah in a film yeah I, because... i'm gonna i'm gonna lay it on the line this is my favorite shakespeare movie <laughs> Okay. This is like it it doesn't um open up the play to me as much as something we'll talk about later but like this is my favorite Shakespeare adaptation movie and she is like no small part of that. She's so great. So uh I don't I don't have words. I should have prepared words. I should have put notes down, but there she's haunting and yeah. so strong and so again patient with the way that she just gets in his head and you see how she's manipulating him just so carefully and and you see him lose it and lose it so slowly that I feel like we we get a little bit I actually feel like from the play standpoint we get a little bit more um of a uh, um, an understandable descent for Macbeth 
um, into that kind of mad rage. And then we are almost, I almost feel cheated of Lady Macbeth. Because I, I feel like yeah. that skip from when she's so strong and so powerful. Um, I know we miss it in the play, but a lot of times films will try to, or theater will try to like fill in the gaps there. And yeah. I felt like the contrast to her being in that out damn spot scene was just so. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all can't see me, but I'm waving my arms around like a wild person. <laughs> I, I am understanding through the physical gesture what is being communicated. Great. <laughs> um, I do really like though that the, the out damn spot scene is set up really early because something that isn't done in the play is like you know Macbeth sort of has his like home fortress where Duncan hangs out and that's where they kill him but in this adaptation he is immediately sent to like take over the garrison that like the the traitorous former thane of Cawdor in in the play mm -hmm. uh lived in and in like right by their bedroom is the room where that guy killed himself there is a scene where some incidental soldiers uh, are talking about the room and like no matter how much they tried to clean it, they couldn't get the blood off the walls. And there's this scene kind of early in where uh, the Lady M character is sitting and just contemplating the blood stains, And you really yeah. see that like you see that early germ of that out damn spot scene sink in. You see it plant in her like she's just staring like a thousand miles into those blood stains, and it's changing something in her. That's a really good, I like that because I, I wouldn't have um, like connected those dots, but I think that's a good way to see it, to see that, to give her her journey a little bit more of a connection. Yeah. But yeah, that talk about haunting and just them having to sleep in this room full of blood while they murder Duncan. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's affecting. <laughs> and also I love the way Kurosawa kind of does a payoff thing with these. Like he does the payoff with the, out damn spot but he also switches around some chronology in the play where lady m and macbeth lose a baby in the third act mm -hmm. like late in the film rather than before the story even starts like the idea of lineage and and legacy and passing something along is so important in the play macbeth and to watch mifune play losing that in real time um, and again, this is something that comes to us like breakneck. Like there was no real mm -hmm. word that that his wife was even pregnant. Well, I thought she may have. I thought she may have been lying. It's possible because it's when it's when she tells him that he needs to take care of the Banquo and Fleance characters. Yeah. Um, he says we're going to have to decide at some point who who to leave this to, and she says I'm pregnant. Yeah, and that is like. That was a really cool moment because I was like, I don't, I don't know if if she is. Yeah, and then she I, turns out she is, and yeah, I feel like if, yeah, you know, like she like she says it and then like makes it so because that is yeah. that is who that character is. Um, yep. she she says the action and then follows through, where her <laughs> husband is the exact opposite. Like he yeah. either does something and like justifies it later. Or he says he'll do it and then just doesn't. And she doesn't mm -hmm. tolerate that. And yeah. that that becoming so clear in this version is uh, very, very, very cool to me. And also that the climax, removing a Macduff character says a lot, especially about like when you know the history of these artists making it and like 
the regime that they were living under. The idea of like the people rising up against an unjust ruler is is really uh, is really cool and very exciting. And watching Macbeth's army just turn on him is yeah. chilling. Yeah, that final scene is. Whew. It's 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 a little hard to watch um, because there's so much chaos after a film that is so patient. Um, It really is. It really is jarring to kind of get through the end of the movie. And that's and you know what? You you just put it like so, so beautifully there because it's not like a gorgeous fight scene. Yeah, it's which Kurosawa can do. Um, and he has done again, see Yojimbo and Sanjuro and a bunch of other stuff. But th- this is panicked flailing we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like in so many productions of Macbeth, I've seen he's like he's like a sword god and he's just tearing people apart. He, he just disassembles young Seward right on stage. <laughs> but the watching instead this um, the, this great leader just fall apart at the seams and just scramble in between volleys of arrows and then just get one through the neck before he can even pull his sword out is it's devastating it's devastating because of how far he's fallen yeah and i like to think of it as he he was we have you know word that in the start of this film he was the greatest warrior he was able to take down entire armies by himself and so with his whether it's the ambition or whether it's the loss of a moral compass, but he's also lost that ability to take on the amount of of other warriors that he would have in the start. Yeah. So like he's lost so much more than just uh, his mind. <laughs> yeah, he lost. He loses everything because he's trying to yeah. hold on to it too tightly. Yeah. You ju- yeah. You just even see in it, the play, he it, can yeah. still fight. You see it slip away from him. It's really, it's really something. It's really good. Yeah, it's um, so good. Throne of Blood is so good. <laughs> so good. Uh, just a, just I... a newsflash. Uh, Throne of Blood, good. Um. <laughs> We're gonna. Uh, I will put um, there. Uh, Throne of Blood and Ron are on Amazon Prime. Okay. Um, Bad Sleep While I found on like Vimeo or something. Yeah, um, but I will I, put you know what? I found it on is Canopy. Notes. Are you familiar with Canopy? I'm not. If you have. Um, a major library card or something. A lot of libraries are tied into this streaming service called Canopy. Smart. That has this very deep film library. I work at a um, a, a university north of Boston, not Tufts, and I uh, <laughs> and uh, through that I have I have a sign in and like if you can like crib one of those from a buddy or something, you'll have a, a hell of a film library and like half of everything Kurosawa made is on there. Nice and yeah, I'll put I'll put links. Um in the show notes so that y'all can uh, put these on your holiday break watch list. Oh, yeah. (laughs) A a holly jolly throne of blood to us all. (laughs) All right. Let's go to Bad Sleep Well. Um, This is, I was saying before we hit record that I had seen this before. Um, I took an adaptations of Hamlet course in grad school, which no surprise, this was part of the adaptations of Hamlet course. Um, And I couldn't have told you anything about it before I rewatched it. But as I was rewatching it, I was like, oh, and all of those images starting started to come back to me as I was watching. Yeah. So while Throne of Blood and Ron both 
take Shakespeare into like the Sanguko period and like the the feudal warlords clashing with the samurai and great armies and all of that, Bad Sleep Well moves it into like modern day business world Japan. Like it moved it right into the here and now. Yeah, and it's good. It's, I, it's good. When I talk about how patient Throne of Blood is, I think it's really interesting because to me, Macbeth is not a patient play. No, it's so fast. So fast. Hamlet is a very patient play, but Bad Sleep Well is not a patient film. No. So I found that uh, contrast and that like crisscrossing of them really, really fascinating. Yeah. Um, we got we got Toshiro Mifune again. He's in uh, the first two we're talking about. He's in uh, No Beard style, which is a very different Toshiro Mifune. Yeah. But no, Glasses, no, though? Yes, yes, please. Yes, please and thank you. <laughs> I'm just going to say it right off the bat. I'm going to say that this changed the way I look at Hamlet permanently. Okay. I would say the greatest criticism of Hamlet as a piece of text and, like, as a character to play and all that is people find Hamlet indecisive. I don't think that's a hot take for me to say that. Yeah, no. <laughs> Here, here is my feeling about that. We only feel that way because we are privy to Hamlet's every thought. The genius of Bad Sleep Well is that Hamlet has zero monologues and yeah. barely any lines. If we don't know what Hamlet is thinking, Hamlet is the scariest character in Shakespeare's text. He is terrifying. He's a trap waiting to spring and no one in court knows what he's going to do. People yeah. are scared of him and this is a neo-noir crime thriller with Hamlet as the protagonist and he's doing all the same stuff. He's just not talking to you about it. Yeah, what a what a brilliant That's okay, that's fascinating because I, I kept thinking as I was watching it, I was like, man, this is an active Hamlet. Hamlet is doing stuff. But you're right that he doesn't actually do anything in the film until we get kind of to the end. He's, um, he's doing a lot, more. but he's doing all the same stuff regular Hamlet does. It's all the same stuff. Yeah. It's all, it's, it, I mean, it's flipped around in order a little bit. It oh, kind sure. of starts with the mousetrap. Yes. Um, instead of a play, he orders a cake um, to be sent he to his own really wedding. He orders a really nice cake. <laughs> This beautiful, massive cake of their corporation office building, you know, and so the whole thing, he's getting revenge for his father. Mm -hmm. He marries the daughter of the man who essentially had his father killed. Yeah. Um, and nobody so knows it's him because two reasons. One, he's an illegitimate son. And two, he traded identities with a boyhood pal who was a, like a used car salesman. So they, like, he's taken on this whole other name, this whole other identity, and this other guy, the Horatio character, is just walking around with his buddy's name going, like, I'm just here to watch what's happening, and when he's done, we'll switch back. Yeah, I, it was, I, I, yeah, now that I'm thinking, because it's kind of the whole movie is replaying in my head, and I'm like, he does this, he, you know... Uh, yes, he kidnaps these couple people, but it's no different really than the way that Hamlet accosts Polonius or kills Polonius. Yeah. Um, I, the the so difference, of course, being that instead of accidentally stabbing Polonius through a tapestry, he, he prevents Polonius from jumping into an active volcano, which is yeah. so cool. 
Yes. May, Shakespeare, take some notes. More volcanoes, please. <laughs> now close your More notebook volcanoes. and take that to heart. <laughs> Man, you know, kids in the 21st century, they would be way more into Shakespeare's plays if they just had more volcanoes. More volcanoes. Three volcanoes per play. I, that's all I'm asking. <laughs> You're not asking for much. Um, I just want yeah. the three witches to each be a volcano. Honestly, though? Honestly? I could get behind that. Let's uh, let's cut this out and, and, and mail this to ourselves so we know it's our idea. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, so all of the... And I've, I've read a lot... Um, about bad sleep well and a lot of people are like well it's not really a hamlet adaptation and i'm like first of all define the word adaptation for yourself i know and then let's let's then let's talk about it um it does not strictly follow the plot of hamlet but you cannot deny that it is a hamlet inspired film with hamlet inspired characters and hamlet inspired actions yeah but uh, yeah that's and that's absolutely uh you know my favorite um, the guy who writes my absolute favorite film reviews is a cartoonist named Branson Reese. And he wrote this great piece about the um, the Disney, like, quote unquote, live action Lion King, mm -hmm. um, where he wrote, like, a lot of people tell you the Lion King is Hamlet. And congratulations on knowing the most famous play ever written. But what Lion King is really about is looking up at the sky and feeling like you're a part of something bigger. And, and like, I agree with that point. But I argue that is like that is what Hamlet is about too, um, yeah. and like the thing about all three of these for me is that by not literally transliterating the play to film, by not just doing a straight up like or Orson Welles or Laurence Olivier, mm -hmm. like we're just doing the play on screen, by adapting it to your artistic sensibilities and your pure vision. Kurosawa is doing Shakespeare. He's doing what Shakespeare did. Yes. He's taking something he loved and telling it again through himself. Yes. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting that um, Michael Almereda wrote an article about Bad Sleep Well, that it really inspired him as he was going to make Hamlet, um, the Ethan Hawke Hamlet in 2000. Oh, sure. Uh, which the one with Bill Murray. I really love. Yeah. The one with Bill Murray. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think Ethan Hawke is, I've said it before on this show, I think he is an underrated Hamlet. I think that film is very, very uh, good for, you know, and it is strictly Hamlet on screen. But I, after seeing that, I can see how deeply it was inspired by Bad Sleep Well. Sure. Yeah. And all of the elements in it that kind of twist the narrative a little bit on traditional Hamlet, I can see inspired by, by this iteration oh yeah i mean literally kurosawa changed movie making forever like he made yeah. three <laughs> movies in a row that literally changed filmmaking forever like he and mifune together made star wars you know like yeah yeah like they the, the hidden fortress became star wars and that like now everything is star wars do you know what i mean yeah they, yeah they for sure made Yojimbo and that became a fistful of dollars and that like reignited the western yeah that and yeah. that and seven samurai like that changed the well, whole game speaking of shakespeare yeah um, Which we were. isn't that uh brana's much ado isn't that i might i might be off i'm pretty sure the um opening shot is a nod to seven samurai oh that's but that's very I'll funny to... for much ado <laughs> well, yes, I'll have to I'll have to look it up uh, at some other point. But um, 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember him saying that. But we have we've uh, strayed a bit from bad sleep. Well, what do you think of yes. our o Ophelia <laughs> character, Yoshiko? Oh, poor sweet angel. And I love her. Our Laertes. I mean, the two of them together are so profoundly um, similar to the source material, while also being really fresh and of the time. And yeah, she's so sincere there's so much sincerity i think about both of them both of them are just so um so sincere there's they're just beautiful characters and they're beautifully acted yeah oh my goodness she is in so many ways like the cosmic opposite of asaji the lady m character from throne of blood mm. like she is she is all heart she is all genuine and as you say, sincere. And whereas Asaji was like all manipulation and all deception. She's all hard edges. Yeah. Um, but but Yoshiko is just this warm, open, vulnerable creature who you just want to, you want her to be okay. And, mm -hmm. and making her sort of the emotional center of the film sells Hamlet's hesitation because Nishi, the, the Hamlet character, his delay is that he this this sham marriage he is in to get closer to this family because he's trying to take down the vice president of this company. He he falls in love with this woman and he's hesitant about tearing her life apart the way his life was torn apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really sweet. Yeah. And it's a it's kind of a cool flip on Hamlet's uh, indecision because we see it we see how he has ramped everything up and planned everything so carefully and this like is the hitch that he didn't see coming yeah but it, it also casts and a whole new light on his treatment of Ophelia because his treatment of Ophelia in the play I mean arguably can be attached to several things there's obviously like a huge contingent of thought that Ophelia is pregnant and he's aware of it but there's also the idea that he doesn't want her caught up in like his his quest of revenge because who knows what that what that's going to do to her like whether she agrees with him or no but here like he has to be cold to her cuz it's his job he's not being cold to her as a side effect of his job the the she's secondary but she's becoming yeah. so much more of a thing in his life that the temptation for him is not to push her away it's to go to her and watching that conflict happen between them because mafune is so good at expressing so much on his face but also so good at expressing nothing at all that you can see it tearing at him in his body. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. And yeah. just the, again, the tension that the two of them have on screen yeah. is palpable. Arguably the most tense moment in the film, and we got to give like huge credit to the, the composers of the score because it's an incredible score, is there is a scene where um, one of the Hamlet character's collaborators who's informing on the company for him um, briefly escapes his custody and comes back with Yoshiko. And when she is revealed, there is this very tense musical sting. Like, like it is as if he has been caught and it's because he has to open up about who he really is. Um, that, that is, that is the same to him as being caught. And that, that just plays, that plays so well. Yeah. Like the, the idea of Ophelia really getting Hamlet, like really seeing him, isn't ever something I've seen like played with that much tension before. Yeah. It's always, it's always the feeling of, I don't know him. Right. 
Um, yeah, we should. It's beautiful and sad. Yeah, it is. We should talk, of course, about the ending because a huge criticism of the film at the time is that uh, a lot of people said the ending was unsatisfying. What do you feel? So I, I, I can see people feeling that way. Um, yeah. And I think it kind of highlights the. Um, I've been. I taught Haji Marat this fall to my kids. And so that kind of like uh, that nobody really matters in war. Mm -hmm. That idea um, is really like heavily ingrained into me right now. So I kind of felt that this was underscoring that we don't even get to see him die because nobody mm -hmm. matters. Like individuals don't matter when we're looking at such a bigger picture of corruption. And I think knowing a little bit about Kurosawa's history, I can see that, um, being a being a an underlying theme um you don't get to watch each soldier die yeah it just happens around you every single day yeah it's this um you know the i i read something where the the composer said that part of his influence for the way he did the music was he would always hear this american phrase about the modern business world it's a jungle out there and he wanted uh -huh. to incorporate that into the score. And I feel that's that's exactly how it is here, too. Like, Hamlet dies, so what? On to the next guy. Like, yep, we literally exactly. walk away for a minute. Mm -hmm. And he's gone. Like, the bad guy wins. Iwabushi, yeah. which is the name of the vice president of the company, the Claudius character, just has him drugged, put in a car, and hit by a train. And this all happens off screen. And this is told to us by the Horatio character who realizes in the middle of his monologue that now he can never go back to who he was. Mm -hmm. He gave away his, his name. His car to a, and his yeah. name. He gave away his name to a dead man who no one will remember existed. Yep. Also, which also in itself is very, the way we find out about the death is very Shakespearean. Yeah. Um, we don't get to see a lot of deaths on stage no. in Shakespeare. No, so, and yeah, and you know what? Kurosawa remains very true to that in a way that's like he's he plays so differently with other things, but things that were so taboo, like seeing a king murdered on stage, is like yeah. he he pays homage to that to still give it weight and power. And the and yep. to just kill off, you know what it's like is um no country for old men, just like kills off the main character between scenes. And you see it in like a vignette. Spoiler alert for a 14-year-old yeah. film. That one best picture. You should have seen it by now. Um, but it's just, they just kill off the main character between scenes. And you see like a brief interstitial where they're like, there he is. He's dead. And then they just keep going with the movie. Uh, yeah, they, the, the choice to do that here, incredible. Just have yep. Hamlet die with no monologue. Because again, he hasn't been monologuing this whole time. Why would we change that now? And if you think about it, in the text, if we're taking soliloquies away, I would be really interested to go back to Hamlet and and see how much Hamlet speaks to others. Sure. Because I imagine it's it's quite uh, it's small. Yeah, it um, is. His dialogue would be small the same way that it was in this film. Like, and because we're not seeing internally what's happening, like you said at the top of this, he becomes so dangerous and so threatening. Yeah, he's just by he's existing. Scary. Yeah. He, he, um, I do want to re uh, go back right back to um, Branna. He yeah. used uh, imagery from the Magnificent Seven, which is a retelling of Seven Samurai. Uh, Seven Samurai. Yeah. So I was kind of conflating. I was missing a step in the middle. But yeah, 
it survives past into that as oh, yeah. well. So into comedies. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> Just um, I really loved Bad Sleep Well. Yeah, I think it may have been my favorite of the three. It's it's so good. Can um I would love to talk for just a moment about the the like we talked about Hamlet's death, but Hamlet's death is not the end of the movie. The, yeah. The last thing that happens is Iwabushi, uh, the vice president, the Claudius character, gets a call from the president of the company, who we never see. Yeah. And um, and he's just like, yeah, it's all been smoothed over. I can retire from the company if you want over this whole fiasco. But if you don't feel that's necessary, I can just do a short vacation. He is sent on vacation. He has no consequences at all. His children have disowned him, but he is suffering no financial, no personal uh, professional consequences from this. But then this is like, it's so minor. Right before he hangs up the phone, he says, uh, good night. I'm sorry. Good morning. I didn't sleep last night and I mistook night for day. And he hangs up and then we get the title card, The Bad Sleep Well. Yeah. Which we have not seen, I don't think, in the beginning. I might be mistaken about that. Um, but oh, the, the direct messaging of that, it's the exact inversion of Claudius's prayer confession scene where he's, he's praying for absolution and to confess the sins of killing his brother. And the tragedy is that Hamlet could have killed him right there, but it's like, if he's praying for absolution, then he'll go to heaven. But then at the end of the scene, Claudius says, like, I didn't really mean it. So if someone killed me, I would have gone to hell. It's the exact opposite in that Iwabushi tells us without telling us that he knows what he did was wrong and it's going to bother him forever. The yeah. direct, the literal translation of the word of the Japanese words of the text is essentially the worse you are, the better you sleep. And Iwabushi is unfortunately not that lucky. He is at heart a human being. And so this is going to tear at him forever. Yeah, and we see hints of that as we go through the same way we see yeah. that the people love Claudius. Yeah. He's a good father, and we hear that from the Ophelia character and Laertes. You know, Laertes knows that he's bad. Sure. And knows that he is a good father. Yeah. So there's that kind of conflict as well, um, which then, yeah, leads to this leads to this ending. And the whole thing that got me about the the ending is that if our if our Hamlet had taken him out, that's not it's still not the end of it. No, it's still not going to solve the problem because yeah. he is not in charge in charge. There's always going to be something bigger and, and scarier out there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Ah. It's, it's all um, for nothing. Just ugh. just like Hamlet. It's all like, for nothing. If, yes. If Hamlet had exactly. done nothing, Fortinbras would have just conquered the place. Yeah. It doesn't yep. matter. Nothing matters. Yeah. Nobody matters. Everyone is insignificant. Which oh, is let's talk about Ron. Which hold on, but that that also circles back to Throne of Blood because Throne of Blood carries that yes. like no theater like drilling, drilling, drilling the Buddhist idea of impermanence. Like all of this will turn to dust. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we should uh, move on to Ron. Oh gosh, yeah. This is uh, thank you for this uplifting uh holiday episode <laughs> there, i know i know it's a bummer no, but they're so, so good brilliant, though. they're so yeah good. so good yeah uh, and there's so much stuff to talk about um uh ron i'm just gonna let you give us a little uh snippet of of concept and i've got a lot to say about this one sure this is um we're taking king lear back to samurai times yet again we're out of the business world we are all the way back to feudal japan uh 
the idea is that all these warring kingdoms have finally been unified under one uh, one daimyo, one great leader, and that's our Lear character. And in his age, he has decided to uh, divest his power among his children, much as Lear did. Um, and one of his uh, children thinks that's a bad idea, and so therefore he is not privy to the inheritance. And such things follow as they tend to do. Mm -hmm. I think out of every um, performance in all three of these films, I think The Fool was standout, hands down, the the best. Sure. I, and I don't like The Fool in Lear. I mm. love Shakespearean fools, but I don't think Lear's fool really hits me the way that some of the others do. I think in productions where the fool is is doubled with Oph uh, Ophelia, uh, with Cordelia. That's a I very complicated that that play for also bringing in Ophelia. <laughs> right. Lear is long enough as it is. Please let Ophelia rest. <laughs> and then in the middle, we do a mousetrap. Um, no, I think that doubled with Ophelia. Oh, my God. Again, doubled with Cordelia. I think that the fool works, but the fool mm. doesn't always really work for me um, in yeah. Lear. In Ron, I felt like the fool character carried carried the film, and and he was present through the whole thing. And there was so much emotion and so much uh, joy and frustration and sadness that came with that character. Yeah, I think they gave um, the fool uh, uh, called Kayami. In this, he's played by a Japanese comedian who just goes by the name Peter, uh, which rules. <laughs> um, they, I think, they gave him some of Lear's lines. Like he has a line that's very similar to one of Lear's, where he says, "Man is born crying, and when crying. he's done yep. crying, he dies." Mm -hmm. it, it's, woof! What a what a gut punch that one is, because that's that's when he's taking care of Lear, like at his absolute worst, uh, and just watching him deteriorate. You you really see. You really see the effect of it on on this guy who is just like I was paid to pretend a vase was a rabbit. That was my life. Yeah, it's just really beautiful, and the way that his comic timing and his performance skills in the whole first uh, part of the film, when he is just a fool, mm. were amazing. And I was already hooked. And then like the uh, evocative nature of his like uh, caretaking of Lear, I just was yeah. like, oh shoot, this is a lot. <laughs> I also think now. Correct me if I'm wrong. Lear is not my my best Shakespeare. I'm not as tight on Lear as I am on Hamlet and uh, Macbeth. Um, but uh, I believe you know the, the little like extra thing that Kurosawa put in. Um, Hidetora, who's the Lear character, he kills a man for the fool. I don't. That doesn't happen in Lear, right? No. Like he straight up murders a man who is threatening the fool and i think that's that's noteworthy and powerful and that yeah. speaks to something deeper in their connection that i that the fool's like sort of repaying over the course of the play like it it shows that like yeah, he doesn't just regard him as a servant yes yeah there's definitely much more importance there in their relationship um i and i think another thing that uh that magnifies Lear. And uh, I, I, I don't have that much exposure to Lear. The most I've really worked on is when we did it with Howell, which is funny seen as Howell, the company is named after a, a King Lear speech, but it was named that because, you know, in the early pandemic, you might remember that like 
everyone and their cousin was posting online, you know, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during a pandemic. Yeah. What are you going to get done? <laughs> and right the year Simpler before, times. the year before a Shakespeare tour I'd been doing, I had to do the Howl speech. And I, between you and me, no one else is listening, right? Um, between you no, and me. No one's here. Between you and me, I hated doing the Howl speech. And here's why because we were doing selected vignettes from plays around a central theme. And so I was playing Lear for the first scene and then the howl scene with nothing in between to connect them. And that is oh. such a gear to shift that I grew to resent it. Um, I don't, so I don't think, I think in general, I don't think that speech works. Um, for, so for those of you um, not, uh, super familiar with Lear, that Howell speech comes as he has discovered Cordelia dead and he is holding her in his arms. I feel like that doesn't work out of con out of context. If we if you have an angry speech at your daughter and then all of a sudden this, yeah, it's like it's such yeah. It was it was too much of a switch to carry and bring the audience along with me so, for them to understand what was happening. So like I really um. So Lear always is a bit of a burr in my mind just from that psychic damage. But when we did it in Howl, um, this actress who I knew in college, Jackie Coughlin, played Lear. Um, Jackie currently does art for my book for the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Alexander Munoz. Um, she's an incredible artist, but um, when, we, when we had her cast as Lear, people were like, oh, interesting. And then they saw her do it and she is... She is powerful um, in the right actor's hands. That that Howell speech just blows the roof off. If you know, you give them context yes. for the scene. Uh, yes. Yeah, because I think when you said it's kind of underrated, I was like, oh, no. Uh oh, this is the strongest we've disagreed all night. No, I, but I, I you know, I Lear is uh, bold stance. <laughs> Shakespeare. Good people. Um <laughs> Lear is a good play. It's just been a bugbear of mine. And like, so yeah. like, I, I love when it can like open itself up. I had actually not seen Ron until this past Sunday. Um, yeah. I'm getting a surprised Ooh. look, listener. Yeah. <laughs> That's exciting. I exciting. love, I love that. Yeah. I wanted to like specifically wait until my partner and I could watch it together because uh, it's, it's fun to bond with your partners about stuff. Um, but something that I really loved about it that uh, opened up Lear for me in the way that bad sleep well skipping the monologues opened at hamlet for me is i feel it steps beyond the text to highlight what a life of successful conquest does to a man and the people around him because he does not realize when he is turning over his power to become some sort of warlord emeritus that everyone around him has been shaped irrevocably by decades of death and destruction at his hands. The, the, the change for Gloucester to be blinded, not by the villains of the play, but by the Lear character well in the past is a huge, hugely symbolic of that. Yeah. Um, the, I wish there was more yeah, of there, that. I know it was already a, you know, two and a half hour movie or three hour movie or whatever yeah. it is, but... I wanted more. Yeah, it, it should be longer. It's very good. Like, I have a strong stance. Movie should be 90 minutes. And if, like, if you got something very important, we can talk up to two. Uh, but, like, boy, hey, Eternals, don't waste my time. Um, <laughs> I loved Eternals. It was so silly. Listen, I had fun watching it. It's nice to be in a movie theater. But, like, you, you've, but got yeah, a very, very long. you've got a very big hat and a very small head. What are you doing? 
But like the thing that really stirred me very early in was um, Kaide, who's sort of the Edmund character. She is married to uh, Tar- to Taro, the um, the sort of the Goneril character, the eldest son who inherits everything. She is immediately she is deeply resentful of Lear uh, of Hidetora for conquering her family's castle and watching her parents kill themselves as he as he rode in to take over their fortress she has this extremely stirring speech um and also in like her makeup and costume design very similar to the lady m from throne of blood uh and such a wild performance what'd you what'd you get from 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 kaide yeah so when it started i was like oh i was a little disappointed because i understood the nature of having to have three sons for the period that it was. I understood that they had to change the three daughters for three sons, you know, for a contextual purpose, I guess. Um, But I was disappointed because my favorite thing about Lear is that we have these three incredible female characters that Mm -hmm. are just all, I mean, whether good people or not, (laughs) um, they're incredible roles to play. Yeah, they're fascinating to watch. So I was I was a little bummed. And then we got Kaide and I was like, oh, I am not. I'm not bummed yeah. anymore. Yeah. She was a combination of Goneril and Reagan. And as you said, the Edmund character. And yeah. I felt like I was afraid of her. She is so intense. Like the minute that she knows she can take control of a situation and she reader she pounces on a man and holds a knife to his throat like within 10 seconds of meeting him and that is just such incredible movie villain energy from a woman whose most of her role has been i need to sit here and be quiet yeah 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 the that scene in particular um, it's like in it's like in the Princess Bride when Count Rugen does the little slashes on Anigo Montoya's face, yeah. but then she uh, like licks the blood off of them. What, a, sexually. what an activated so. performance! <laughs> like yes, yeah, she's an animal. I I loved yes. her. I loved every second of her. Mm-hmm. I could have done with like another hour of just her doing her thing. Um, Agreed. Yeah, every everything about the. The way those stories shook out was uh, really fascinating. The way they reinterpreted it, the way um, in so in this version, uh, Reagan has uh, Goneril shot in the back in the middle of a, a battle. Um, one of the more harrowing battle scenes I've seen. They um, as uh, rather than just sort of coercing Lear into giving up his retinue, um, his children just attack the fortress and lay waste to everything. Uh, it's an it's an ambush. They are taken entirely by surprise. We see Lear's concubines killing themselves. There's this extremely stirring shot where two of them just fall on each other with daggers that really stuck with me. And over all of this is like, there's no sound of battle. There's no cries of agony or anything. There is just the music and watching Lear's face as this all falls apart around him. And he becomes that which he caused. It's the idea of like, reincarnation putting you in your victim's place but it's happening to him in real time in his real life and the the tone of everything changes the minute that the goneril character is shot in the back 
by his brother's general. Mm -hmm. And then we're in a war. Now we're on their side. Now we're on the side of the conquerors as they pour in and tear apart the man they descended from and then each other as quickly as possible. Yep. And I, I found it so compelling because in Lear, uh, you know, Goneril's like, you can't have 100 men. You have to cut down to 50. And yeah. then Reagan is like, why do you need 50? Why not 25? And then Goneril's like, well, why 25 if you can have one? And so all of his men just kind of go off into the ether or wherever they go into the, you know, the break room to drink before curtain call and or to change costumes and become someone else in act two. Yeah. But in this the, that option is is taken away. They are all dead. Yeah, they're just gone. They're all dead. They're, just they're gone. all gone. Yeah. Every single thing that he has is taken from him so violently that I feel like his descent into that madness uh, is so much more not justifiable because like I think that you can feel it in Lear. It, you know, if you have the right cast and the right actors, you can really feel that um, pain that he's feeling in the play but i felt like in this film it was just magnified times a thousand because it was just so cruelly ripped yeah like you see him look for a knife to kill himself and he can't find one and that breaks him mm -hmm. like like all he wanted in that moment was to die and to know that he couldn't and that no one would kill him like ruins him and he keeps cutting yeah. back and forth between these scenes of devastation and his face and he just gets worse and worse as they they do this makeup design to like evoke no masks and between every shot they just do a little bit more and a little bit more until he's like this like inhuman vision of sorrow and he looks like that for the next hour and a half of movie it's very cool it's very, very cool. cool effect yeah um yeah, I really, I really liked Ron. I thought it was um, brilliantly, a brilliantly done Lear story. Um, I think that, it, I think all three of these films were just masterpieces in their own way and also in like a, a, a collection. Um, yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Alexander, thank you so much for bringing these and for... Uh, talking about them and for getting me to, you know, rewatch and watch them for the first time. Stephanie, it's, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I love, I love talking about this thing. Clearly, I, it, and it's, uh, it, it's just great to talk with you about it because you're so effusive and you have all these uh, great points and uh, angles that I didn't necessarily uh, come to on my own. And also, you're a much more educated person than me, so it's. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> mm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not educated. I'm not. I just have big words. I might uh, yell more. <laughs> oh, yeah. But no, it's just it's just nice talking with someone who gets what they're talking about. Uh, and that's yeah. one of the things I, I love about your show is Thank everyone you. has a command of what they're talking about. <laughs> I love that you feel that way. That um, That's amazing. Alexander, tell everyone again uh, where they can find uh, you, your Patreon, uh, and all of the work that you're doing. Hi, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at nbalexander, E-N-B-Y, Alexander. I'm a very sporadic tweeter, but I think I'm pretty good at it. Um, if you want to follow my writing, which I think is pretty okay, it's at patreon.com slash Alexander Munoz. That's A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R-M-U-N-O-Z. I write essays about film. I write short stories, I write scripts, and I have an ongoing story that's published chapter by chapter every two weeks. It is about a paranormal investigator uh, living who, who lives in a college campus that sort of dropped into a fantasy patchwork other world, and they have to go off campus out into the weird world around them to try and find a lost cell phone. 
it's uh my it my therapist has described it as wow this is sad and also weirdly funny are you okay and that's my life that's <laughs> sad and, uh, and weirdly funny and for the month of uh, December and January, I'm donating all proceeds from the Patreon to charity, uh, specifically for uh, children with cleft palates. That's amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. Y'all, I'm going to put links to all of that in the show notes, as well as links to where you can find um, these three films, because I definitely recommend if you like Shakespeare, you should put these on your list. They are worth seeing. Thank you, Alexander, again. Thank you all for listening. And we'll see you all next week for a little lighter movie fair. We're talking Shakespeare, Hallmark, Christmas. Have a good week, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Serious business.